Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I will be speaking with Dr. Hannah McGlade, who is a really amazing academic and advocate for her people. She's a Noongar woman and Associate Professor at Law at Curtin University. And we'll be talking about a report by Human Rights Watch called Never Coming Back about the deaths of prisoners with disabilities in WA. It's heavy, it's a big story, but it's also super important. If you prefer to listen back to it another time or not at all, that's absolutely fine, but it is a really important story. Rights Watch just released a deeply disturbing and damning report called Never Coming Back into Deaths of Prisoners with Disabilities in Western Australia. Dr Hannah McGlade is a Noongar woman and an Associate Professor of Law at Curtin University and is on the line to tell me about this report. Hannah, thank you for taking the time. Good to speak to you. So there's a huge problem of over-incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country and a huge story about the prison system that is often missing is how many of those who are locked up, First Nations or not, in adult prisons and youth justice have disabilities. What does this tell us about the prison system in this country? I think it tells us something about society as a whole, really, that the prison system is reflecting our values and our track record on human rights as as Australian people and Australian society. And it is a shocking reflection on, you know, every every level of this country, from government to the people that voted in governments that don't care about our most vulnerable people, who are people with disabilities. It's a real wake-up call. And I think it's something, obviously, that Aboriginal people know full well, that so many people die in custody because, you know, we're a minority who's, you know, long history of rights being violated and oppressed in this country. And prison's a difficult experience for anyone, least of all someone who has a disability or various disabilities or dealing with mental health issues. What goes on in lockup that might exacerbate disabilities? Well, one of the most extreme practices concerns solitary confinement or segregation. And prior to the report by Human Rights Watch being released, I was involved in cases in Perth in relation to Casherina Prison and the treatment of young Aboriginal men. I'd been contacted by family members who were deeply concerned about what was happening to them. They were at the back, is the euphemism for this practice. And I was not actually aware that in 2019, the West Australian government had introduced a new policy called disruptive prisoner policy, where they were actually just going to town on the use of solitary confinement. Very extensive. So I became obviously very concerned about the timeframes that these young men were being subjected to in a solitary confinement, which means 23 hours out of 24 in a cell by themselves with nothing to occupy them. And they're allowed out for one hour of fresh air and sunlight, but it's, it's in a caged wide area and there's no one else there for them. So, you know, I think it is torture according to the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture. He says you should never put disabled people in solitary confinement and you should never subject anybody to more than 15 days of solitary confinement. The risks are very high, including risk of suicide, risk of developing psychotic illnesses, risk of physical compromised health as well. So that's just one example of how the prison system engages in practices that are actually creating disability 
on the part of people and furthering disability and putting people at risk of killing themselves. Another practice that's been widely raised and critiqued is the use of strip searching, particularly with Aboriginal women, women prisoners who have a high rate of trauma history, including sexual abuse and violation. So I know the UN Committee on Discrimination Against Women really criticised Australia when I was in Geneva observing the Australia Review of their compliance, but I don't see any change in that practice. But certainly solitary confinement and strip searching are quite horrific practices being utilised every day. Last week we were texting in the middle of the week and we were just talking about getting this interview up and you told me that you had just received a report of a man who'd been in solitary confinement for seven months. Can you please tell me about that case? Yes. When we began our case challenging the policy, DPP, Disruptive Prisoner Policy, in the Supreme Court of West Australia. We were told by the young male prisoners that there was another guy in solitary who had exceeded all their time. He, um, he had been there for months, over six months, and we actually ended up you know, going to see him, of course, immediately and finding out what his situation was, and I did receive the affidavit from him, and uh, he'd been subjected to seven months, which is just horrific and, and quite shocking and he was released when the Supreme Court challenge happened because the Department of Corrections and the Minister for Corrections decided that they wouldn't contest the legal court case and they released everybody from this policy and they said they'd review the policy. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, what, what, what can we say that this, these cases are not even being brought to public attention unless we're somehow being really activist um, Nobody knew about it for seven months. Uh, where where is the voices? What 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 does this say about the Office of Independent Custodial Services? These are independent monitoring mechanisms that are established that are said to be in compliance with the Optional Protocol and Convention Against Torture. But yet we didn't know. The community did not know that actually there is torture happening. It's happening now. It's been happening for seven months. I guess a young Aboriginal man. And as you said, the WA government does know about this. The Western Australian Office of the Inspector of Custodial Services warned a couple of years ago that the state is not meeting the mental health needs of prisoners. What has changed in these last few years? The Office of Custodial Services also said you are exposing yourself to legal challenge through this policy that you're now adopting. That's in their report. They don't see it as their mandate to speak publicly and that's a problem because the only people that read their reports are basically researchers and maybe some very senior government people who are just obviously ignoring what they're saying. The Minister for Corrections in particular has abdicated his duty there, I think, certainly. Yeah, so look, uh, um, you did tell me, you did ask me a question in here. I'm just uh, lost. I did. The question was, what has changed in the last couple of years since they've known that the state is not meeting mental health needs of prisoners? It's it's blatantly, um, screamingly obvious and the, the official advice is there that people's mental health needs are not being met at all. The system is in crisis. And this is particularly so for Aboriginal people who don't have access to cultural healing, who don't have access to even Western psychiatrists when they're at risk of suicide. And we know that suicide is the second leading cause of death of Aboriginal men in Australia today. So, you know, there really is an abdication of responsibility, a neglect of the duty to look after the prisoners and there certainly hasn't been any increase in mental health supports what we've seen is the opposite the introduction of unlawful policies which increase people's risk of poor mental health and possibly suicide.
is there enough staff? Are the staff trained enough? Or is it that the prison system is just not a place where people should end up? How can we, you know, what is it? How can we change it? Because clearly it's not working. We really do have to rethink the trend towards increasing incarceration, particularly of Aboriginal people in this country. And we're incarcerating Australia is too many Aboriginal people who have disabilities, men, women and children. There was a study shown in West Australia that the Bankshire Youth Detention Centre had very high levels of Aboriginal youth with cognitive disability and yet they're not being diverted into community-based programs or interventions or supports they're being sent to a detention centre in Perth, sometimes, you know, so far away from their country and their family and the things that can give them the link that they need to be healthy people, young people. So we have to stop putting people, disabled people in particular, in jail in the first place. And the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody more than 20 years ago made it very clear that incarceration should be a measure of last resort. But that's not happening. And we have laws, particularly in West Australia, the mandatory detention laws, that don't allow any judicial discretion as to a sentence in certain circumstances. And Aboriginal people we know are being racially profiled and do get the, you know, the rough end of the stick when it comes to these practices. And young people are finding themselves, even young people with no prior history of offending, with no leniency at all shown to them. Instead, it's, you know, in an incarceration response. And I think, you know, it's, it's really harking back to the convict history, actually. This is what was done. This is what will continue to be done and, you know, the financial and the human cost is extraordinary and and we cannot afford it. We were talking a little bit off air about this because a report's just come out in Victoria that two-thirds of children locked up on remand, two-thirds of them don't eventually get sentenced, right? And so these kids are locked up for months and months and months on end and they don't even have a sentence that is the same length as how long that they had been originally on remand for, right? And so, as you said, like, it should be, you know, according to the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, it should be a last resort. I know some would argue it should be a no resort. It should never happen. But it's clearly not being used as a last resort. Incarceration is not being used as a last resort. It's like the first step. Yes, absolutely. We had a case here where an Aboriginal grandmother with dementia was actually incarcerated for a week in a women's prison, a privatised prison, for a neighbourhood dispute. It's absolutely shocking. We do have judicial bias as well and racism. And that would not happen, everyone knew. The, the Attorney General said that wouldn't happen if she was a wealthy white woman from the western suburbs. Of course not. But what the AG attorney has failed to do is engage properly with Aboriginal people around the justice reforms that are blatantly needed and required by any measure and certainly by human rights standards that we've agreed to. Aboriginal self-determination in the administration of the criminal justice system is critically important, yet we're denied any participatory rights and we have outstanding important inquiries such as the Australian Law Reform Commission Pathways to Justice Inquiry to address Aboriginal incarceration rates that was tabled in federal parliament at the end of 2018 and we're not seeing any responses to that and in particular the inquiry found that we have to re-establish the Aboriginal Justice Committees which were a key recommendation also of the Royal Commission some 25 years ago. West Australia was the first state to disband the Aboriginal Justice Committee and we now have the highest rate of Aboriginal incarceration and the highest numbers of deaths in custody in the country as well. And our youth incarceration here is absolutely shocking. It's double the national average and it's about roughly 50 times, you know, an Aboriginal young person in West Australia is 50 times more likely to be incarcerated than non-Indigenous youth. So 
severe issues around racism, race discrimination, lack of respect for human rights and, and inequality driving these mass incarceration situation and warehousing of vulnerable people and, and abuse of people and, and sadly a, a great many deaths as well. Yeah, we talk a lot about the privatisation of prisons in relation to the United States. And you and I both know prison is big business in this country and in other parts of the world, whether the prison itself is a privatised prison or whether there are different companies that are subcontracted within the prison system to provide X, Y and Z, whatever it might be. In WA, private prisons like Acacia are run by Serco, who was contracted by the government to run detention centres, immigration detention centres, both on and offshore for a while. Is that a problem in and of itself? Absolutely. Where does the where does the private companies like Serco come with the human rights and social justice framework or, or or some sort of accountability to you know the Aboriginal people have been subjected to incarceration since the beginning of colonisation? I mean, the first public building in West Australia is the Roundhouse, which is an architecturally unique building. You'll only see it on the west coast of Africa because it's a slave building basically, and that was the the idea here to enslave Aboriginal people and get them working on the plantations and the pastoral stations and anybody who resisted, any man who resisted was, you know, chained by the neck and taken thousands of miles away to be incarcerated at this prison, the first building, and then taken off to Rottnest Island, just offshore, which now has the largest mass burial grave in the country. We can't afford private companies from France or anywhere else in the world. This is a social contract and a human rights obligation that Australia owes to Indigenous people to be looking at ways of of addressing these problems in a modern, progressive human rights framework. And we're seeing some good examples internationally. We see the healing lodges in Canada that have been devised with Aboriginal people. I'm not, I don't know, I'm sure there are some flaws there, but the fundamental principles are around supporting Aboriginal culture and healing in these centres. We also have in Norway, I've been reading about the Howden Prison, which is based on therapeutic principles. And it's unlike apparently most prisons in the world where this is really about actually proper training of the staff to work with the prisoners on a therapeutic level. That's what we need to be doing. We certainly won't get that with these privatised for-profit companies who are responsible for many deaths in custody. And, And recently we had the young Aboriginal man named, his surname I believe was Stanley, and he was crying out for mental health support. And of course, Serco did not give him the support that he needed. And we've seen this time and again, Jaden Bennell, young situation as well, he needed mental health support. And they do need, of course, and this has been picked up by the Human Rights Watch report, I've emphasised it to them, the imperative of cultural healing, of Aboriginal cultural healing. We need the Aboriginal mental health workers and healers and elders in the prisons as well. Mm-hmm. And is it about like prevention, support services, dealing with the underlying issues that are causing Indigenous people, poor people, disabled people, those within the intersections of all of this to end up locked up and then eventually dying in prisons? Because we don't want prisons, right, at the end of the day. No, of course not. And Aboriginal people have been saying for a long time that what we need is healing on a massive scale. And, yes, there is a problem of Indigenous violence, and that is a reflection, I've always argued, of colonial violence, which is continuing to this day. And Indigenous women and children are often bearing the brunt of, but, you know, we, we all as Indigenous people are suffering, particularly 
in relation to the incarceration situation. And that advice has been firmly within the government's frame for a very long time, including by people who've inquired on on behalf of the government. So Aboriginal women leaders across the country have have argued for healing and therapeutic and preventative responses firmly grounded in Aboriginal culture delivered by Aboriginal people. But that's not what we've seen. We've seen an undermining of Aboriginal-led approaches, of Aboriginal organisations even, I know that that government is saying it's going to turn that around now, but a lot of our Aboriginal corporations were actually defunded in favour of non-Indigenous not-for-profits who don't live and work in our communities and who don't have our understanding of what our issues are. Yes, there is a lot of trauma, there is disability, there has been patriarchy imposed on our communities and our women have been disempowered. We now are dealing with, you know, introduction of, of course, ever since colonisation, there was alcohol was introduced, you know, now it's a, a drug, such a ravaging Aboriginal family and communities. We want our, we have our strong people in our community, even in Perth and urban places. I was speaking to a young man yesterday who's, he practices culture, you know, with young people, keeping them safe. And that's what we need. We need these people's support. But instead we're seeing, you know, the prison industry is constantly being funded and the justice system that just is, you know, discriminating and and subjecting people to this kind of treatment. We're not seeing the investment in our community that needs to happen. Yes. Dr Hannah McGlade, thank you so much for taking the time and and really unpacking this with me. Hannah McGlade is a Noongar woman and associate professor of law at Curtin University. If you want to read the Human Rights Watch report into deaths of prisoners with disabilities in Western Australia, it's called Never Coming Back and available on the Human Rights Watch website. Also, if this brought up any difficult to process emotions, it's okay. There is support out there. You can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 anytime, day or night, and someone will be there to speak with you. I'm going to play you part of an interview that I did with Sampa the Grey and Nasa Lifia, who is the founder of Polar Psychology, about a collaboration that they're working on that focuses on ensuring African young people can access culturally safe and responsive mental health care. It is a campaign where they are looking for support in the, you know, in any means, whether it's financial or just supporting the actual cause. But the whole purpose, I guess, you will find out about in this interview, and I start off by asking Sampa where the collaboration kind of started. For me, I was looking for a therapy sort of avenue where I know that whatever whatever I'm going to say to the person is going to be taken from a cultural lens because of the industry I'm in and I needed that understanding for what I was going through at the time. And so I asked around, I asked a couple of friends and polar psychology came up. And so I looked through it and the one biased thing was that she was Zambian. And I was like, yes, good, (laughs) dope. But even more so is polar psychology stood for the same things that I was looking for. I needed that, you know, cultural connection with what I was going through. And and that's sort of what made the connection with me going with polar psychology. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you and I have spoken about this on the show before. We've also spoken about yeah. this in private before. The music industry is a difficult space for artists in Australia yeah. in general, yeah. but especially for black artists. And I guess Time's Up 100%. is a response to that to some extent and a call to action about that. What has 100%. the experience been like for you, though, in the music industry? <laughs> Grueling, testing, heartbreaking, disappointing, strengthening, 
growing, like all the words in anything. When you're passionate about something, which is music, and you fight for it, you're not only fighting for one thing as an artist when you're Black, you're also fighting for the space to be in there to do what you love to do. You're also fighting to open doors for people who look like you. You're also fighting to just create and not have to do anything else but. And so with Time's Up, it was sort of a conversation with Crown, who's amazing. And we were just having a conversation as Black artists on, on what we experienced. Because I remember when it was just about, this is my dream and I'm going to, you know, go for it and experience it. And nothing's going to, you know, that young passion <laughs> that hasn't <laughs> jumped hurdles yet. And, and, you know, a bit more of the experience in the industry. You have this conversation between these two artists and you see, you know, how these b barriers even lessen the passion, you know, they lessen the love for what you do. And I think it was important to have that conversation, but even more so to highlight to young up and coming, you know, Black artists that there is a major hurdle as Black musicians. And with that also comes the stress and the mental health that we never talk about as Black artists. And the other road to that is us being Africans. And, and how mental health and being in African families is also a conversation within itself. And I know it was such a broad topic to touch on, but I at least wanted to highlight it with Time's Up and be like, if we're going to talk about Black music and we're going to talk about Black artists, we're also going to talk about Black mental health. And we're going to highlight that because as much as we're talking about systemic racism, we need to know that it takes a toll on Black artists. And if it's not talked about, it's it's something that we can't use to maintain this this struggle, this fight for equality. We need to know how to also take care of ourselves within it. And I just thought that it was important to highlight that within the song and also to partner with polar psychology to make sure that as much as we're talking about it, we're also creating an avenue for people to seek advice, to seek the therapy that is needed for this to be a fuller conversation than just, yo, we, we need help with mental health, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then just leave it at that. Like, mm -hmm. what avenues can we reach out for young Black artists for them to see that it's okay to talk about mental health, even though they're not talking about it with their families? And that's what we mean about a cultural responsive. People thought we were just, yeah, we just want to have Black therapists and that's it. No, there's a dichotomy to everything when you're talking about race and it's also present within health. And we wanted to make it a thing to show that there are places that can cater to you as a young African who may not talk about mental health with your family, but you need that avenue to talk about it with someone else. And that's sort of how the polar psychology, some of the great and time's up partnered in and tried to highlight this message not that we had a solution to it but to highlight it and to show that there are avenues that exist and they are avenues that we're trying to grow. Nasa Lithia it's interesting because we'll talk about polar psychology in a second but it's interesting because the kind of stuff that Sampa is drawing out and is talking about essentially is racism within a workplace right mm -hmm. and that is kind of the beginning of these conversations about racism in the music industry or racism within the mm -hmm. arts industry or whatever that might be what kind of difference is there between racism in a workplace and like middle of the road day-to-day -day racism experience <laughs> every day Every day. Yeah, to the average racism that you face ever going to the supermarket. Mm. You know, there's, there's the difference is you're, you're dependent on this place to survive. You need mm. a job to have housing, to have health care, to have access to all the 
the kind of basics of living and you have to go into this space. You don't, you kind of don't have a choice in a way <laughs> you can choose your workspace, but yes, yeah, so I think the idea of needing and being dependent on a job where you're experiencing racism is a very different experience because you're trapped in a way yeah. there's that that sense of feeling trapped and i think you know we all often talk about microaggressions in the workplace with clients and they talk about that idea but microaggressions aren't small things i think the the wording makes us feel like it's this small thing that you can you know, move, yeah. off and move on but it's actually not because i was talking to a client recently and i said the reason these microaggressions bother you is because they're reflective of a bigger issue and your wider experience of being in the western context or a racist context in general it's not just like someone touches your hair and that's the end of it it speaks to the relationship you have with yourself and society at large and I think that's it's it's a really challenging thing to be experiencing those things in a place where you have to go and be professional and what does it mean to be professional and what it what does it mean to be experiencing harm and then having to maintain this professional face in that mm. space. I think there's so many layers that I we could probably speak for hours about what that looks like and how that feels, but there's lots of layers to experiencing racism in the workplace that, yeah, I think makes it a little bit different. Yeah, for sure. And this, I guess the word that kind of stuck out at me was the sense of feeling trapped, right? And I think that's a really mm. important expression and experience because you're absolutely right. There are certain ways to respond to racism when you're on a walk that you may not be able to utilize when you're in a meeting and it's your boss or it's someone who is in the music industry who's a big deal who might be kind of engaging with it so I think that yeah that's absolutely a really interesting and also like profound insight into what the differences are I do want to ask what made what made you start polar what was the kind of thinking behind that for you it's a really simple answer. It's, I literally was looking for a therapist and I couldn't find one that met all my criteria. And that's essentially what I decided I was going to create. Mm. There's, there's probably lots of other reasons beyond that, but that was the main basis of it. I wanted to find a therapist that was competent in their practice, but also someone that reflected my politics and was willing to, if, if they didn't have the same experience, lived experience as me, at least were willing to let me speak to my experience in a safe way. And that was surprisingly hard to find, which was sad and disappointing but then I thought, well, I guess if I can't find this right now, maybe I can just be this and then hopefully I'll, I'll stumble upon these therapists in my work and then I can find the right therapist for me. <laughs> so yeah, essentially I just, I was looking for a therapist and couldn't find one. So I decided to be the therapist I needed for others. Listen, mm. and we are all very thankful for that because now yeah. there's like, Firstly, more than one. We love and respect that. But also there are lots of people who are starting to think about mental health. I think my personal experience when it comes to therapy, and I've been seeing therapists for a long time, <laughs> so I would know this, and it's, I guess, that exact feeling of walking mm. into a space, you feel like, you know, university, for instance, and they kind of give you that person that's assigned to a lot of students, and you walk in and they might want to, like, pathologise something that isn't, really that deep to you but they might think it's really deep generally or they might kind of want to 
put you in this box that maybe they learnt about at university where someone like you might fit. And you see that and you experience that because you experience racism all the time. We're like experts in how that shit feels. So it's like it's a really interesting kind of dynamic. But then when you find a therapist or a psychologist who doesn't do that, it's like, wow, this is how white people must experience therapy. (laughs) I can't believe it, you know. It's a really special experience. I'm really glad you did that for yourself and for the rest of us. So in terms of this partnership that you guys have formed, what are the kind of practicalities of it? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good question. I think I'll kind of speak on Sampa's behalf a little bit on here, yeah. assumptions. But there there was definitely an acute need at the time. And not that there hasn't been a need all along, but, you know, with the hyper-visibility of the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that was going on in the context of a global pandemic and the context of so many people being out of work, I think there was just this profoundly acute need for something to happen and I think Mm. this is plugging sort not really completely meeting that need but it's plugging a a small part of that gap in the hopes that has a long-term impact on the individuals that get can get access to therapy but I don't I don't think either of us have any kind of ideas that this is a long-term solution of fixing that problem We, we saw the problem happening and we saw the need happening and we wanted to highlight that conversation, not to fix it in its entirety, but to highlight that conversation and also to remove the negative connotation behind therapy. It's always that's for broken people sort of thing instead of we all need this to maintain healthy mental health, which we all have. And I think that was also important to bring to light is when we talk about therapy, like you said, Arij, like the happiness that white people must feel when they have a good therapy session is the same happiness that we want everyone to feel, including us, especially for what we go through. So it's just to highlight the negative connotations that come around the word therapy and why, and just to start that conversation and create an avenue for anyone who needed it. Mm. It's also awesome because to some extent it highlights the gaps, right? It highlights, you know, the reasons why our people aren't engaging. It highlights the fact that there are institutional failures when it comes to mental health care Mm -hmm. in this country, right? If you don't have enough money, if you don't have the access, if there are not enough culturally responsive psychologists or therapists, counsellors, whoever, then of course there are going to be problems. And so in some ways it kind of does a double thing of supporting some people that possibly can be supported and it would be a good outcome for them, but also demonstrate actually how deep-rooted the problems are. Now, so let's see how deep-rooted are the problems. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Help us, please. Yeah, it's it's a real... it's it's. There's there's a lot. I I am very selfishly hoping that this inspires some people that have started undergrads in psych or counseling to complete them because you are needed very desperately by me to have more colleagues. But but also (laughs) because there's there's so much work to be done. And I think unless we're in the room or part of the conversation, people make decisions on our behalf about what we need. Mm. And that's a really dangerous uh, paternalistic approach, which won't go into the history. But, you know, in the in the country that we live in, there's a long history of that approach being 
used to fix in quotations, fix issues uh, without consultation with anyone. So I think there's, yeah, there's a huge gap that needs to be met. And I think unless we're part of the conversation, decisions get made on our behalf. Mm. Yeah. Sampa, you know, Nasalifi was talking about the kind of acute need that this project or this campaign came out of. And the pandemic is a really big part of that, like Black Lives Matter movement, absolutely. But I guess that compounded with the pandemic and also how quite specifically that impacts the livelihood, but also like the sense of self for an artist like Mm. yourself. How's it been going for you? (laughs) It's been going like it's been going for everyone else, except there's no foresight to our future as artists at the moment, unfortunately. And that just creates huge anxiety you know this is your livelihood this is the thing that you studied the thing that you fought for with your parents and your family and it's kind of been taken away from you under the rug but not completely you know they still hope for it but what this does create is 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 a lower sense of self because in actuality this is your purpose but when if you're talking about me for me I've had to sort of redefine the purpose as an artist and a musician in the beginning of the pandemic it was sort of like ah entertain us because we have nothing to do and it's very important to understand that artists are people too you know we're going through the same exact thing we've lost our jobs and and we're trying to create music in in the time of corona basically and that will take our emotions as well us dealing with that in order to create the music for you so different artists are dealing with it in different ways and for me it's just redefining how as an artist will I create in this time and it's also another thing to see you know the activism take place but when it's performative it's sort of like okay (laughs) we'll just step back and let you do that because we know that that's going to fizzle out but for some of us it still remains the same, you know? So we're fighting for our jobs and we're still fighting for our humanity. And that's just sort of what we're dealing with as artists, specifically Black artists in this pandemic. And I don't have a solution to be like, this is the way, guys, to make it better, but definitely to, as individuals, treat ourselves with the same amount of care as everybody else. Because at the end of the day, besides the industry, besides music, we are human beings. And then we are feeling the same things that everyone else is feeling. So it's important for us to not be stuck up in the, uh, let me create a product, let me create something for everybody to feel good and, and put myself on the wayside. It's, it's, it's a hard time for artists, very hard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. People, I think, are starting to take their first steps to taking care possibly of their mental health because there are folks who have experienced mental health difficulties in the past and they're now just even more heightened and there are people who have maybe not experienced them to the extent that others have and are really starting to experience them now. Now, Olivia, what are some good first steps for folks who are a little bit terrified by the whole, the whole thing that you do? I mean, we love it, but it can be scary for people who have never engaged. Yeah, I think uh, hopefully part of the first step is recognising that you'll be talking to another human being. We're not robots that are going to just 
tell you you're broken. I think that's a good mm. first step to kind of humanize it. And also that it's a very normal thing that every, almost everyone I know has needed to or is engaged in therapy. I guess the, the practical first steps in, I guess the one of the really good things that we have access to in Australia is you can get access to 10 sessions of heavily subsidized or completely free therapy sessions that you get through your GP. So you can simply go to your GP, ask them for a mental health care plan, and they'll ask you a few questions, ask you to fill out a short questionnaire, and you get a piece of paper, and then you can go see a therapist of your choice that is covered by Medicare. And I guess that's the first step. The second step, I think, is looking for the right therapist. And there's two places that I, well, a couple places where I think are worth looking at. There's a website called Psychology Today, and it has a whole host of therapists. And you can like specifically ask for certain things, and that'll come up in your search. There's more specific lists. So on the Paula Psychology website, there's a therapist directory. And this is like a curated list of people that I, I rate as good therapists. And then there's also an Instagram page called Our Directory that has a similar thing. And that's across Australia and New Zealand. And it's not just therapists, it's GPs and broadly health professionals, which is incredible. So you can find a GP to go to and have a conversation about just from that list and then pick a therapist. So I think those are really good first steps, getting a mental health care plan, recognizing what you do have access to and finding the right therapist, which is a bit of a mission. <laughs> and it's a bit like dating, you know, you kind of have to see who's around, you know, look at their profile, see if they look like their face that you wouldn't mind speaking to for 50 minutes every other week. And yeah, look around and there's lots of culturally responsive therapists that are kind of coming up and are popping up everywhere. So there's a lot, there's actually a lot more option than you might think. So yeah, those are places that I'd recommend as a starting point. Amazing. And just quickly, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about. One is this campaign and how people can get behind it. And then the other thing I want to ask Sampo about is this new Jungle Pussy remix. But let's start with like the campaign and then we can talk about the music. <laughs> How can people support you? How can people get behind this campaign? One way would be to donate if you do have the funds to, because the donations is what keeps the therapy sessions going for the people who are seeking therapy. Another way would be to spread the word, however you see fit, to just share that this is going on for, for people who don't know that this is happening. To, to anyone, your families, your friends, media outlets, however you see fit, but to actually share that this campaign is going on. Yes, love it. And you can find it on the Polar Psychology website and also all the socials, yeah. Sampa's socials yeah. and Polar it's, socials it's as well. 100%. So Time's Up was a hit. And also for everybody that knows me, I was in the music video. So if you just want to go check out the music video, I actually make a really important appearance. So maybe pause this for the minute, go watch a music video and then come back to listen to the rest of it. You actually have been involved in a lot of the music. Like not on funny talk, like you've been in BB9. You've, you've been in the room as we were making by river like this this is a friend friend this is what i'm saying to the people i just don't think people recognize my impact but anyway <laughs> anyway so we had time's up featuring crown who for me is like my heart i think you know crown is such a beautiful amazing musician. 
such a He's talented, gifted, incredible performer. Yeah. And you were like, so that's not enough. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get a ring. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go all the way to New York and find Jungle Pussy's email address to see if she's keen. And she was keen. And now we got this, we got this remix. Don't Tell me about how that, how did that come about? What the hell? <laughs> No, but time's up. The original one was enough. <laughs> I think what I wanted to do was also add to the conversation of, of being Black artists. And, and that is the dichotomy of being a Black woman artist. Mm. And I needed a voice for that story because Black women artists face a lot of BS. I don't know if I can say what I need to say. There is sexism in the industry for sure. Anything that happens in a society will seep in to the arts industry. And that is something that I had to say as an artist who's been working in the industry and seen everything that is disproportionate with showing the talent, giving opportunities and so on and so forth. And I wanted to give a voice to that experience as well as the experience of my blackness. And so I, I, I was seeking out Jungle Pussy because one, she's amazing. And two, She's always reminded me of the power of Black women rappers. Mm -hmm. There's always this thing of either being on that end of the, the spectrum, spectrum that wasn't created by us, where it's we are told that we are overtly sexual or whatever, to the other end of the spectrum where we are told that we are too much, we're too masculine or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she, being in her whole totality, is able to do any and everything and be that rap goddess. And that's why I, I, I was seeking out to have Jungle Pussy on my song, because that is also something that I can aspire to be myself. And so I hit her up and she was like, I love the song. I definitely want to get on the track. Not only do I want to get on the track and speak about my journey, we are going to give opportunities to, to other Black women and non-binary folk to speak on their experiences and voice their experiences out and we created a time's up remix competition which is still going on so for <laughs> any black women out there who want to say some shit because i know <laughs> we need to say some shit you go ahead <laughs> and download the link in my bio but it's really just to give a voice to to us because in the, there are many instances where we don't have that voice or that voice is taken away or some people take that voice and have it as their own. And we wanted to give this opportunity to Black women, unbinary folk, for you to have your own voice and speak up. And so Time's Up, the remix was created. Oh, my gosh. That's a good <laughs> origin story, Sam, but we need to make, like, a superhero <laughs> movie about that. <laughs> yeah, honestly, honestly. <laughs> it's amazing. I um, This has been so beautiful to be able to have this conversation with you both. I know Sampa is halfway around the world, yes. which is very sad to me. And every day I'm reminded of the fact that you left me, but that's okay. I love and you and I love everybody <laughs> in Belts. I'm here for my family. Um, but, you know, the pandemic creates the situations it creates. 100%. But, hey, technology. Exactly. And it's so beautiful to be able to do this with you both, yeah. despite not being able to be in the same space physically. Hopefully we can do this in person again at some point, yeah. hopefully very soon. Nasa Lithia, Sampa, thank you so much for yeah. joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marie. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.